Good morning. Welcome to those of you who are watching online by live stream and to those of you who are here in person. As a courtesy to um, other folks, would you please check to make sure that your cell phone is off or in silent? And um, thank you, Rodney and Lauren, who are standing back there, who make sure that all of this happens, and Tim, of course. Um, Appreciate them. So let's do what we are in the habit of doing. Let's begin in silence. And uh, our goal is to be present, to get in the room. Put last night and the game this afternoon aside. And let's be here. And I begin with this adaptation of a Gallic prayer I found. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and our, our departing. So my hope is that you find what you're looking for by being here today. Um, and may that involve peace and joy. Um, and you know that in this time we honor those eternal verities of, of love and of honesty slash truth and of freedom. And we do what we do with the belief that what we do benefits all people everywhere. More about that in a couple of weeks. By the way, uh, Stephen Kleinberg is going to be our speaker here next Sunday. Uh, Stephen Kleinberg is a professor of Rice, at Rice, former professor at Rice, who has run the Houston survey for years and years and years, now under the umbrella of the Kinder, Kinder Institute. So he will be here to talk about what has happened in Houston, the trends and developments over the last decades, and I think it will be something that you will want to uh, expose yourself to. Houston says, I mean, uh, Kleinberg says that Houston is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. And so that's something to pay attention to. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I am going to be a nag because I want to keep reminding you that when we come back here after the first of the year, Jan Phillips is going to be spending Saturday and Sunday with us. And I just don't want this day to get lost in all the hubbub of, of Advent, which is a wonderful time here at St. Paul's. As a matter of fact, at 4 o'clock this afternoon, you need to be back here for Lessons and Carols, which is one of the highlights of the Advent season at St. Paul's. I'm not sure when the children's candle lighting service is, but um, people pay money to see a show like that. 
it's so great when it comes around. So if you can see the children's lessons and carols, but this afternoon, the lessons and carol service at four o'clock is really, really worth, worth doing. So the registration for this event is now open and I sent out a special announcement yesterday about it because very frequently when I type, one of the typos I make over and over and over is to replace the word now with not. So in the email of the preview of this class that I sent out, I said that the, the registration was not open. But the registration is open and if you go to the landing page, this is what's called the landing page of the Ordinary Life website, and uh, I do not do my part to update it as frequently as it needs to be updated from the point of view that I could make some contribution. Thank goodness for Tim who does this. But this is what our landing page looks like. And all of those buttons across the top are buttons that you can push for resources. And you can go there and get the text of all the past talks that have been done in here. For the, you can, a link to all the audio presentations of the talk because very frequently the audio and the text vary quite a bit or that you can get a link to the video. To all the archives that we have, you can find some way to get to that. The book, most of the books that are mentioned in here are somewhere on the website. And just for those of you who need guidance in this, if you go to this site and just circle, I mean punch that button that I just highlighted, that will take you to the registration page where we have a way of getting money from you, which will cover the cost of your lunch on Saturday. It will not nearly cover the cost of what this event will cost us, but I want to encourage you to uh, do this. I don't know um, how often you go to that website, but, but it's really good. I, I think one of the great things in doing this work, and by this work I mean getting to sit with people for direction and counseling and getting to teach here and all the th ancillary things that are involved in that. One of the great things about that is that um, getting to meet the people that I then get to introduce to you. During this time, for example, when I've taken a break from teaching, the speakers that we have had have been just absolutely wonderful. I mean, they've just been fabulous, including the one that you will hear today. But um, I got, for example, in pursuing the work of Richard Rohr to meet Ilya Delio. Ilya Delio came here um, and spent time with us. Got to meet Michael Morewood. By the way, if you go to this website and to click on resources and scroll down, there is a piece on there called My Encounter with Michael Morewood in which you can read the uh, interviews that were on the Progressive Christian website. I think that's what it's called. It's called where Shelby Spong used to put his material. Um, and in that, uh, in that resource thing, you can see an encounter, my encounter with Michael Morewood. This year, Michael Morewood, who is my age, he's 38. <laughs> he got in touch with me and said that he and Maria were coming from Perth, Australia to the United States. And they were going to do a driving tour around the United States. It ended up being over 8,000 miles. 
He's my age. I would not have done that. Flew to L.A., rented a car, and drove, and he said, I don't want you to tell anybody I'm coming. don't want to do any teaching. I just want to go around to places where I have taught and met people, and I want to spend time with them. So Michael and Maria Morewood came to our, our home, spent a couple of days with us, and we had a wonderful time. He's a seven on the Enneagram like I am, so we played well together. It was, <laughs> it was fun. And I was just at that time um, beginning to articulate this new trinity of love, honesty, and freedom that I've talked about. And we talked about that sort of thing, what we were reading, what we were writing. In the process, he said, have you met, did you know Jan Phillips? And I said, no. And he said, well, you should. And so he recommended a book called Still on Fire told me about his encounter with her and their time that they'd spent together. I, I read um, Jan's book, and just as I did when I read Michael Morewood's stuff, I got in touch with her and said, I would love to see if we could get you to come to Houston to speak. Fortunately or not, St. Paul's is a place where a lot of stuff gets scheduled and organized, and so finding a time slot for somebody to come is difficult. But we found one. It sounded great until I realized, good grief, this is the first Sunday after Christmas, after New Year's, after the first of the year, so we'll, we're not in the rhythm of being here. So that's why I'm, what's another word for nag? Remind, urge, huh? Pester. You feel pestered? Okay. You will by the time I'm done. This is why I want to keep bringing it up. Put this on your calendar, please. It, you, you could not give yourself a better New Year's resolution than to sign up to come and hear her. I talked on the phone to her yesterday. She has had COVID, she's in the process of recovering, and she said, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. And I said, which you should, I understand, never ask somebody, how old are you? And she said, well, I'm older than you are. And I said, let's bet on that. <laughs> so I won, I won that bet, she's 76. Um, but uh, really, everybody I know who's read her book, you can go on YouTube and see some of her some of her material. When we taught first, when we first started talking, we came up with a title about where to shine our light as one possible theme. And then, as we continued to talk, we came up with where, who am I now as a person of faith? Either one of those would be well, be good. So I sent this information out yesterday as a special announcement, and I don't know if you're on the email distribution list, if you didn't read it, but I'm going to read it to you again. These are her words to give you a hint of what you're in for. To be on a spiritual path is to take responsibility for creating our own creed based on our commitments and to respect the rights of others to do the same. It also means to reflect anew on what beliefs we've inherited to be sure that they are compatible with our own wisdom. To be on a spiritual path is to embrace the mystical paradox 
that while we are singular physical beings on this journey, we are also connected to one another, animated and sustained by the same wild spirit that abides in the star, the petal of an iris, the howl of the wolf. That's good stuff. And that's what she'll be doing when she's here. It will be didactic. It will be inter uh, interactive. It will be uh, small groups. It will be experiential. Um, she is a singer and a poet and a performer. So um, you're in for a treat. And um, I want you to come, OK? So I want to also acknowledge that as a seven, on the Enneagram, we sevens have a hard time sometimes getting in touch with our feelings. And I had been in denial about how expensive emotionally and physically this move of ours would be. And I, I, I tried my hand at doing some writing this week because I'm going to teach on the 18th. And um, I've confessed that um, I really have missed teaching. I have been so grateful to have this time where I didn't have to do that. So I want to thank you for providing the space for me to have this move. I want to thank Dr. Brian Powers for um, today. Brian uh, taught while we were in England. He and I talked briefly right before he got accepted, I believe, into the Living School. You were just applying for the Living School at that time. Brian is a former surgeon. Um, I asked him a minute ago if he missed it, and he said, sometime. So that's more of, of his stuff. But he's a certified spiritual director, a recent graduate of the Living School. You know the program designed uh, to continue the legacy of Richard Rohr. And uh, Brian, I'm so grateful that you're here. Come and do your magic. Brian Powers. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Good morning. So, nothing's on the screen. Uh, this is ours. Doesn't recognize me. It's my wife's, but I know the secret code. Do you have a clicker? I'll have to click myself. Okay. All right. I think I can do this. Yeah, I've got it going now. No, you did some presenters mode. Oh. This thing here? It's, you got to take your cursor up. Now you're there. Oh, okay. So the quote that you see, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, 
What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Now, who's he talking about? Well, there's a little mystery to it. In Mark, they don't even say what her name is. Just a person walks in with an expensive bottle of perfume that probably cost about $10,000 in today's dollars. And um, that's pretty expensive perfume. And it's a pretty lofty thing that Jesus says about this woman um, and told in remembrance of her. And yet, do we even remember who she was? I mean, to this day, Mary Magdalene remains a mysterious figure. When I was a boy growing up, I was taught that Mary Magdalene was an ex-prostitute. And as a boy, I thought, wow, that Jesus was really nice that he forgave her. Uh, and that was it. That was kind of about the extent of it. Since then, I've learned how much she's been marginalized by the church for centuries. And the more recent scholarship has revealed that she was a committed disciple of Jesus. She understood Jesus' teaching better than any of the twelve. And the word apostle means to be sent. And she was sent by Jesus to tell the other 12 that he had risen from the dead. So she was the apostle to the apostles. So how did we get the impression that she was an ex-prostitute? Well, I've got to move a slide here. In Luke chapter 7, again, there's a woman who's not given a name who anoints Jesus' feet this time rather than his head. And when the Pharisee who invited Jesus to the table saw this, he said, now if Jesus only knew who this woman was, he wouldn't abide by it because she is a sinner. Now, they don't say what kind of sinner she was. Okay. Well, then the second thing is in the Gospel of John, Mary, now this time it's called Mary of Bethany. There's some confusion about Mary's. Um, this is the sister to Martha and Lazarus. And um, we can't suppose that this is the same person as this other woman and Mary Magdalene. But that didn't stop Pope Gregory from putting other things together. Because then in Luke, Mary Magdalene is described as the woman that the seven demons were cast out. Now, we're not told what kind of demons were cast out. But conflating all these different references, Pope Gregory the Great, in 591, preached this influential sermon in which he suggested these three people were one person, and that was Mary Magdalene, and taking those words from the Pharisee, what kind of woman she is, he decided it had to be sexual sin, although it's never stated in any of the four Gospels. So since 591, 
Mary Magdalene's been an ex-prostitute in the public imagination. Was when I was growing up. Now, maybe Pope Gregory was doing this because he was trying to fight heresies at the time. Because as we'll see a little bit later, Mary enjoyed a much, Mary Magdalene enjoyed a much better reputation in some of the churches that weren't deemed so orthodox compared to the Orthodox Church. But I also think it might have had something to do with women and their ability to have authority in the church. Now, this suggestion uh, has been used to degrade her in the public eye. In the worst way, you can imagine that you can do that. It would not be until 1969 that the Roman Catholic Church finally said, whoops, we made a mistake. She really wasn't a prostitute. <laughs> Sorry. And then in 2016, which was, you know, not many years ago, they finally assigned her a feast day. In the Roman Catholic Church, if you're a big saint, you actually get a feast day. If you're kind of a small saint, you get, you get a memorial day. And um, there wasn't much fanfare about this. <laughs> but um, they finally said, you know what? She really was an important saint, although she's been considered that ever since the early days of Christianity, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So I think it's high time that we restore her to her rightful status, that she was a powerful woman of faith and devotion, a true disciple, even though she wasn't one of the twelve, an apostle to the apostles, and a role model for all of us. So with that in mind, I'd like to look more deeply into what we do know about Mary Magdalene, both in the four Gospels that we're used to, and in three other Gospels that you're probably not too acquainted with. Okay, so first of all, let's look at her name. Magdalene. Most people assume that Magdalene means she came from the town of Magdala. And that's the Greek version of the Hebrew or the Aramaic Migdal. And indeed, there was and still is a, a town on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee called Migdal. The problem is, there were a lot of places called Migdal all over the Middle East. And in fact, the fourth century Christian historian Eusebius thought Magdala was a town in Judea, not in Galilee, because there was one there. And they're all over the place. Um, because the meaning of Migdal in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke, uh, it means tower. So any place that had a geographic feature that made you think of a tower or an elevation could be called Migdal. 
But scholars have noted prior to that proclamation of Pope Gregory the Great, um, nobody thought that Magdalene had anything to do with the place that she came from. Because what few people realize is that the Aramaic word migdal is used as an honorific title. It didn't refer to where she came from. It referred to her character. In fact, this was recognized way back in the fourth century by Jerome, who growing up Catholic, we call him Saint Jerome. But he's the guy who translated the gospel, well, actually the, the Old and the New Testament, the whole Bible, into Latin. And in order to do that, he had to know how to translate not only Greek into Latin, but Hebrew and Aramaic into Latin. Because of his knowledge of foreign languages, he knew that this word, migdal, was an Aramaic honorific title. He believed in his writings that she was a tower of faith. And he wasn't the only one. There were other writers of that time that also wrote that she was a tower of faith. Apparently, Jesus liked to nickname people. He nicknamed James and John, two of his first disciples, the Sons of Thunder, because they wanted to burn down a town that didn't welcome Jesus into town. Do you detect a bit of irony there? And, of course, he nicknamed Simon Peter. Now, we always think it was because he was the firm foundation of his movement. But I wonder if it was also because he was kind of thick in the head. I mean, it took him a long time to catch on. So it doesn't seem that far-fetched that Jesus gave Mary the nickname Tower to signify her character rather than where she came from. Okay, well, why did he give her that nickname? Was it because she was real tall? Probably not. Now, one thing I found out, which I thought was very interesting, is that in Luke 8, Mary Magdalene is identified, along with some other women, as supporting Jesus' ministry, quote, out of her own resources, unquote. Now, wait a minute. How did a woman in first century Palestine have a lot of money out of her own resources. Women weren't even supposed to have money. I mean, if your husband died, the money went to the son, not to the wife. Um, and we tend to think that, and I'm probably way off with my slides here. Let's go to the next one and see what it says. Oh, that's down the road, okay. We tend to think that Jesus you know, walked around with the 12 disciples, 12 apostles. But when you read in the different Gospels, there were at least 25 people in his retinue. That's a lot of mouths to feed. So where did the money come from to feed all these people? Well, the Gospels tell us. It came from Mary Magdalene, and it came from another woman, 
that I'll mention in a second, but she must have come from an affluent family. I mean, there weren't too many successful businesswomen in first century Palestine. Uh, although there is mention of one in Acts. Uh, there is a woman, Lydia, that uh, is mentioned in Acts that she was a successful entrepreneur. So, could be. But given the customs of the time, it's quite remarkable that a woman would be capable to financially support this group of disciples and to follow them around the countryside. I mean, women were supposed to stay home and be subservient. And, I mean, for her to be part of this group was kind of scandalous. But she did it, and Jesus allowed it. In all four Gospels, the 12 male disciples are counterbalanced by a female presence. And it's usually collectively referred to as the Marys, because there were a lot of Marys in that group. Participation in the inner circle of Jesus was determined not by gender, but by the degree of understanding and commitment. And all four Gospels place Mary Magdalene inside that inner circle. But I think the real reason that Jesus could have given her that nickname is because she understood what Jesus was trying to say more than anybody else. Because there's plenty of instances in the Gospels where it's clear the 12 apostles don't have a clue. One example is found in Mark 10. The apostles James and John come up to Jesus to ask him a question. They say, well, when you begin to rule your kingdom, will you please let one of us sit on your right side and other on the left? Well, of course, when the other disciples hear this, they're furious. They want that job. I mean, it was a struggle for prestige and power. Another example is in Matthew 18. The disciples want to know which one's going to be the greatest in the kingdom to come. And then in Matthew 19, Peter exclaims, remember, we've left everything to be your followers. What do we get? It must have frustrated Jesus like crazy. I mean, these are the men he handpicked to be his apostles. And they just didn't get it. Another very telling passage is found in the 12th chapter of John, where we're told of the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary. Now, she's weeping. I mean, she's miserable. Because she knows that Jesus is going to die soon. She knows he's going to die in a few days. And she anoints him as a sign that she will soon be anointing his body for burial. She gets that there is this strong connection between love and death. You don't have to be just William Shakespeare when he talks about Romeo and Juliet, the connection between love and death. That if it's really deep love, there is a dying to self. And it's, poets get it, but most of the time it's hard to accept. She got it. Now, all the other apostles can do is criticize her for wasting money. But Jesus comes to her defense. 
says, leave her alone. She has kept this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, wait a minute. How did Jesus know she'd been saving this up for his burial? And how did Mary know that it was only a few more days and he was going to be dead? Had they been talking about this? Well, yeah. I mean, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples about his impending death. But they didn't get it. In Mark 8, he teaches them he must suffer many things and be killed. Peter takes Jesus aside and starts to argue with him. And Jesus says, get behind me, say, you don't get it. In the next chapter, he tells him again. But they did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. In Luke 18, he's explicit in predicting his torture and death. Quote, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Well, who or what hid it from them? Was it hidden because it just didn't fit into the scenario they had in their heads? It didn't fit in because it didn't go with the power and the glory they were still expecting with this? Well, it seems pretty clear to me it wasn't hidden from Mary. Instead of fame and power, she knew that suffering and death accompanied the highest form of love. Now, when Jesus was arrested, the other disciples disappeared. Jesus trailed, I mean, Peter trailed behind and then denied him three times. Now, I've always found it very interesting in that little thing in John where he talks about Peter outside the gates of the high priest. Because it says that another disciple accompanied Peter and went into the house of the high priest and then came out later on. Now, wait a minute. Who in his retinue would know the high priest? We always assume it's John, because we assume that the beloved disciple, uh, the favorite disciple, is John. But this time in, in the gospel, it doesn't say the beloved dis disciple or the one that Jesus loved. It just says another disciple. Well, how in the world would a fisherman from Galilee know the high priest? In fact, in the Acts of the Apostles, later on, John is brought before the high priest, and it's commented how unlearned and uncouth John is. It makes no sense that John would have been permitted inside the high priest's home. Much more likely, it would have been one of the wealthy persons in Jesus' retinue. Now, Joanna is the other person that's mentioned in Luke that was a, a financial supporter of Jesus' ministry. Joanna was the wife of the head steward of uh, King Herod's household. 
Now, if her husband was intelligent enough to run the royal household, they probably had some pretty good connections. And maybe it was Joanna that went in to talk to the high priest. Maybe it was Mary Magdalene. I mean, we know she was wealthy, and with wealth comes access. Anyway, that's a sideline. <laughs> the important thing is that while the other disciples ran and hid, Mary Magdalene stands firm. She does not run. She witnesses. In all four Gospels, she's there during the crucifixion. She's there when he dies. She's there when he's taken down off the cross. And she's there when he's laid in the tomb. In Matthew 27, we read, And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, a lot of Marys, remained standing there in front of the tomb. I mean, no wonder she knew where he was laid. She was there. She probably spent the night in vigil there. She certainly was there very early on that Sunday morning. Because all four Gospels mention Mary Magdalene by name as the first witness to the resurrection. John's Gospel suggests she was the only witness to the resurrection. And this is remarkable because it would have been considered scandalous for a woman who was not closely related to Jesus to have gone to the tomb to anoint his naked body. I never thought about that. And all four Gospels portray her as the first to announce the resurrection publicly. Now, this is especially remarkable in view of the fact that back then, women were not allowed to be witnesses in any court of law. So it would have been kind of embarrassing to the early church to have these situations out in the open. I imagine they would have liked to just kind of keep that hush. The fact that it's nevertheless consistently reported is pretty good evidence it happened. They couldn't hide it. To the victor belongs not only the spoils, but the right to tell the story. And by the fourth century of Christianity, there was beginning to emerge a victor's circle, which could claim for itself the status of orthodox. Not surprisingly, this circle began to form itself around the emperor Constantine. And as the church consolidated, it had a story to tell. You know the story. If you've been raised Christian, it's in your blood. It's not only in the Bible, it's in your blood. And this story has several assumptions so powerful. They comprise what some scholars call the master story. Number one, Jesus reveals his pure doctrine to his apostles. Number two, after Jesus' final departure at the ascension, the apostles divide up the world among themselves, and each takes the unadulterated gospel to the land that they are allotted to. And then even after the death of the, of the apostles, the gospel branches out farther, but now obstacles spring up. The devil can't resist sowing seeds 
of doubt in the divine field, and he's pretty good at it. So true Christians are blinded by him, and they abandon the pure doctrine. Now this unbroken chain is called apostolic succession, and it's the cornerstone of ministry and authority in the church to this day, specifically the Roman Catholic Church that I grew up in, um, says there will never be women priests. There will never be women priests because all 12 of the disciples were male. Really? And um, not so sure about that. Now, in the simplified version of this story that most Christians are thoroughly imbued with, this amounts to the following tenets. Jesus came to earth to found a religion called Christianity. And he called his male-only disciples to be his apostles and priests. Now, the obvious anomalies are overlooked. I mean, Mary Magdalene, who was specifically given the charge to be an apostle to the apostles, is not included among the apostles. And why Paul, who was not at the Last Supper, never met Jesus in his earthly life, is included. Such is the power of blinders. So seamlessly did this master story become, after 1,600 years, that it was impossible to see it any other way. But the time box, the time bomb was already ticking. In 1945, some kids out in the desert discovered this big urn. And it uh, turned out that there were monks living in the area that had sacred texts that they didn't want to burn. They were told to get rid of them. Uh, because in the late 4th century, the late 300s, there was this bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, who decided what was in and what was out. Took a, there was some argument about it. Revelation didn't get in until the very last minute. Um, but by the early 400s, most people decided who won the sweepstakes and who was left out. Well, these were the texts that didn't win the sweepstakes. And at first, this international team of scholars that were called forth to analyze these scrolls just dismissed them, either because they were late, in other words, they'd been written way after Jesus was around, so you couldn't rely on them, or they were Gnostic, with a capital G, which is, that means heretic. Problem is, there's a difference between Gnostic with the big G and Gnostic with the little g. The little g Gnostic is just somebody that wants to have knowledge, which is not such a bad thing in and of itself, you think. Um, Gnostic with the big G is a heresy that turns out wasn't even formulated at the time these things were written. That was later. Now, little by little, 
people start to understand that, well, no, these weren't that late. In fact, the Gospel of Thomas, one of the scrolls found there, proved to be contemporary or even earlier than the Gospel of Mark, which we think is the first Gospel written. So then things really start to get turmoil, like, wait a minute, could there be heresy that early? Biblical historians have come to realize that the winners and losers in the sweepstakes of what gets to be considered canon and what's outside that seem to be determined not so much by divine edict as in the, the far worldlier uh, world of politics. Because early Christianity was a riot of pluralism. Uh, as different in ethnicity and temperament as the Mediterranean lands that it spread to. There were Jewish Christians, there were Greek Christians, Roman Christians, a whole line of Syrian and Aramaic Christians. There were millennials, there were mystics, ascetics, misogynists, matriarchs, you name it. And each community struggles within the terms of its own frame of understanding to make sense of the teachings of Jesus. And so in each community, it looked a little different. And these texts that circulated back then really were kind of an ongoing conversation rather than an unbroken monologue. Now, the treasure trove of writings emerging out of Nag Hammadi and other recent finds yields some very important new source materials for the study of Mary Magdalene. The Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, which were discovered in the Nag Hammadi scrolls, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was discovered earlier in 1896. This was found at a Christian burial site along the Nile River. Um, they had unearthed this town, and in one of the homes, within a niche in the wall was found a codex, which is a, a bound, rather than a scroll, it's a, it's a bound book. It was written in Coptic, which was the common language of Egypt. They dated it to the late 300s. Um, and the German ambassador to Egypt purchased this manuscript and he delivered it to the museum in Berlin the weird thing is the translation wasn't completed until 1955. And few people paid any attention to it until the 1970s. That's when scholars were starting to reconsider things. They were starting to analyze the scrolls from Nag Hammadi, and they looked at this thing that was in the museum in Berlin and went, well, wait a minute. <laughs> and um, I should mention, we knew there was a Gospel of Mary Magdalene a long time ago from the writings of other scholars back in the three and four hundreds. They mentioned it, nobody had a copy of it. But we knew it existed at one point. Well, since they discovered this copy in Egypt, they have found earlier copies of it in Greek, not in Coptic. So it, it was written a long time ago. Now, if you had grown up with the master story, you could easily declare, wait a minute, there are only four Gospels. 
Well, I, I couldn't resist. I, I had to show this quote. Uh, this is a quote from Arrhenius, who um, is considered an important developer of Christian theology. He was a bishop. Uh, and this was asserted back in the year 180. And when you look at it, it's kind of like, what? It says, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. For since there are four quarters of the earth, well, if they have four quarters, it's going to be four, and four universal winds, I don't think I was taught about the four universal winds, and living creatures have four parts. The Gospels are in accord with these things. So, thus the Gospel has four parts. It's fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side and vivifying men afresh. Men afresh. These things being so, all who destroy the form of the Gospel by being either more in number or fewer are vain, unlearned, and audacious. I don't think this reasoning would work today. It took almost 400 years for the church to decide what was in and what was out. And of course you have to wonder who decided. But even then it wasn't really over. I mean in the 1500s Martin Luther moved seven Old Testament books out. He called it Apocrypha, which means they're not quite as good as the Holy Scripture, but they're still, good, they're still good books. They're worthwhile to read, but I can't put them in with the rest. And that term, Apocryphus, uh, was used for other books, and it's still used today. So you could call the Gospels I'm going to talk about in a minute Apocrypha. Or you could say they didn't win the sweepstakes. Um, so let's take a look at these books to see what they have to say about Mary Magdalene. The Gospel of Thomas represents an early stream of wisdom that flourished in first century Judaism and early Christianity. The list of aphorisms or sayings of Yeshua, which is the original Aramaic form that we use as Jesus. Jesus expresses what we might call the wisdom of the twin. Now, Thomas means twin. And the entire gospel puts emphasis on this understanding of how two-ness emerged from oneness. And how the return to oneness from two-ness, or duality, is the ultimate goal of spiritual evolution of humanity. And people are finally beginning to understand that now. But in this gospel, there's a verse where Peter demands that Jesus dismiss Mary Magdalene from the inner circle. He says, quote, Mary should leave us because women are not worthy of this life. I think it might have been a little jealous. Peter's, of uh, Jesus' response to Peter is not only an explicit, explicit validation of her spiritual authority, 
but a powerful summary of his vision of the fully realized human being as one who both integrates and transcends all gender identification. He says, see, I draw her to me to transform her into a living spirit, just as I do with you. For every female that embraces her masculinity and every male that embraces his femininity will enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. I could see why Orthodox Church Fathers didn't go for that. In the Gospel of Philip, we again find a non-dualistic presentation of Christian thinking. We see that the sacraments are not external rites of the church, but are inner experiences of transformation. And his death, rather than being a sacrificial offering to appease an angry God, is rather the result of his own personal dying to self, which is what Jesus talked about. That's a big difference, a big difference. In this gospel, Mary Magdalene appears most undisguisedly as Jesus' companion and beloved. Quote, the teacher loved her more than all of the disciples, unquote. But it's in the Gospel of Mary that we really see how highly regarded she was by all. This Gospel begins with a dialogue. It's between the resurrected Jesus and the disciples, and the disciples' minds have been opened. They've been through a traumatic time with the passion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so they're going through a teaching and starting to get things they didn't get before. And then Jesus leaves them, saying, Peace be with you. May my peace reside within you. Sounds a lot like the other Gospels. Guard carefully that no one misleads you, saying, Look, he is here, or he's over there. For the Son of Humanity already exists within you. Go forth now and proclaim the good news concerning the divine realm. Another way to say the kingdom of God. Beyond what I have already given you, do not lay down any further rules, lest you be dominated by them. And having said this, he departs. Immediately after the departure, the disciples begin to mourn and exclaim, how are we to go into the rest of the world proclaiming the good news? If they didn't spare him, will they ever, how will they ever leave us alone? So this is where Mary steps up. Quoting from the Gospel of Mary, Mary arose, embracing them all, began to address them as her brothers and sisters, saying, Do not weep and grieve, nor let your hearts remain in doubt, for his grace will be with all of you, sustaining and protecting you. Rather, let us give praise to his greatness, which has prepared us, so that we might become true human beings. As Mary said these things, their hearts were opened towards the good, and they began to discuss the meaning of the Savior's words. Well, Peter turned to her and said, Sister, we know that the Savior greatly loved you above all the other women, 
So tell us what you remember of his words that we ourselves do not know or perhaps never have heard. Mary replied, I will tell you then as much as I know of what may be hidden or unknown to you. And here she goes, she begins to describe this vision that she had uh, of the master. And at the beginning of the vision, Jesus says, blessed are you, Mary, since the sight of me does not disturb you. Maybe she was used to having these visions. So after she completes this description of the vision, she starts to get blowback. The Apostle Andrew's response to Mary's vision is, quote, Say what you will about all that she has said to us. I, for one, do not believe that the Savior says such things to her, for they are strange and appear to differ from the rest of his teachings. And after consideration, Peter's response was similar. He says, Would the Savior speak these things to a woman in private without openly sharing them so that we too might hear? Should we listen to her at all? And did he choose her over us because she is more worthy than we are? Do you get the sense there's some competition going on here? I mean, this dualistic kind of thinking was just getting started. And then Mary begins to weep. And she says to Peter, my brother, what are you thinking? Do you imagine that I've made these things up? Or that I'm lying about the Savior? Now at this point, the apostle Levi, also known as Matthew, comes to Mary's defense. He says, you've always been quick to anger, Peter, and now you're questioning her exactly the same manner, treating this woman as if she were an enemy. If the Savior considered her worthy, who are you to reject her? He knew her completely and loved her faithfully. We should be ashamed of ourselves. As he taught us, we should be clothed instead in the cloak of true humanity and follow his command, announce the good news. And that's the end of the gospel. So we see in these passages that Mary steps up to take control, shows her respected position within the group. It shows her unwavering resolve. I mean, she had an advanced understanding of the master's teachings based on vision and private revelation, which has always worried authorities about private revelation. The fact that she greets them all as brothers and sisters means that there was nothing extraordinary about having men and women within the inner circle at that time. So we've looked at what the four Gospels that we're familiar with say about Mary Magdalene, and we've looked at what the three Gospels that we don't know very well and in the process, we've begun to understand a bit more about the early church. One of the things we find is there was a transition from a prophetic and transformative movement to a reactionary religious organization that lives on even today. We find an astounding contrast between what Jesus taught on the one hand and what later fourth century writers thought on the other. There was a shift from knowledge that was not simply to be understood intellectually, but to be experienced as transformative, shifted to a concern about dogma and correct theological formations. Jesus talked about denial of the self. It wasn't about aggrandizement. 
he knew that he and the Father were one. And he invited us to find reality through direct experience towards unitive consciousness. But by the third and fourth centuries, the church took a radical turn in the direction of institutionalism, which is inherently dualistic and concerned with hierarchy. In our postmodern world, there is a call for a new paradigm, one that could lead to a fresh way forward. Because the old paradigms, with their divisions and demarcated beliefs, frankly seems kind of obsolete or even spiritually cold. Many religious institutions are divided into the extremes between fundamentalist adherents who, looking backward, hold desperately to simplistic and rigid versions of their faith, while some of those more liberal are trampling the traditions in a desperate search for fresh air. But a lot of energy gets wasted on the battle lines between them. We Christians have repeatedly adapted our message, our methods, and our mission to the contours of our time. What might happen if we understand the core Christian essence as creative, constructive, and forward-leaning that challenges all institutions, including its own, to learn, to grow, and to mature towards a deepening, enduring vision of reconciliation with God, self, neighbor, enemy, and creation? For example, what if being born again has nothing to do with fundamentalism? but is a call to a radical personal transformation? What if talking about the kingdom of God does not mean you're fighting against secularism, but that you've committed your life to the divine values of justice and love? What if living the true Christian way is essentially about opening one's heart to God and to others? With that kind of passion and conviction, living the Christian life still makes sense. Thank you.